podcast. I am Clark Massey uh, coming from Kansas City, Missouri. This is the official podcast of A Simple House, and I am here with longtime friend of Simple House, Mr. Ryan Haber. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? Now, you know Laura and Ryan for a while now. Uh, how did you first meet them or come to Simple House? So a mutual friend, a kid I grew up with, actually the younger brother of uh, of like one of my college roommates, we were altar boys together and so on, uh, introduced me to Ryan. Um, and I got to know Laura a little while after through him. Um, and this is going back about 15 years now. So it was around the time when they were getting involved with Simple House. Um, and then over the last 15 years, we just got to know each other better and better. And um, uh, through them, I volunteered for a few Simple House activities like delivering Christmas presents or um, then I got involved in the book club, which to this day is kind of my ongoing regular activity where I, I go to Simple House book club pretty religiously. That's great. Um, if anybody hears this and is in the Kansas City or Washington, D.C. area, we've had a book club for about 18 years, I believe, maybe somewhere between 17, 18 years. So please uh, consider coming to that. We're always, we're trying to read books that are good for you that you would not read otherwise. Um, it's a, yeah, it works great. Well, Ryan, you have a very interesting ministry and I, I don't know what we're going to call this episode. It might be like how to get a job with a theology degree, but my understanding of your ministry is you are helping people who are either leaving seminary or leaving a religious order or um, have like a degree in Catholic studies or theology or something and think they their only option is to become the next youth minister or work for the diocese. You're helping them enter the, what do you call it, real economy? Yeah, I would say like the economically productive economy. Um, and it started off with women who were leaving or had left the convent uh, through an organization that like provides them like social and emotional support. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, actually the Archdiocese of Washington has referred a couple seminarians to me. Um, word of mouth has done some more stuff. And I also help um, through an organization called Upwardly Global that uh, helps refugees with like college degrees uh, and who speak English start like transitioning to American professional life. Um, and this is not a career for you. This is just your service to the church. This is, you do this for free. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, um, I kind of see it like the stuff that's for like the ex-nuns is my service to the church. The, uh, the stuff for like the, the Ethiopian refugee is like the service to the world and humanity. Um, it's a side thing. It's a, it probably takes on average a, like a little under an hour a day. Um, but I've really come to enjoy it. Um, I've worked with 20-ish different, like, let's call them clients, um, uh, on an ongoing basis over the five years or so. And, uh, and then I, I don't have any idea how many, like, very short-term things, like resume advice and stuff like that for one-offs. What's the average amount of time you'd spend with someone? Um, like, is this like you, you coach them for an hour, they go out the other end and they're cool. Or is this like you're meeting with them once a week for a year or what? Um, nobody's quite at once a week. So I always give them some kind of assignment and then they come back when they've more or less finished it or when some new situation has arisen. Um, it's hard to give an average. I would put them into like to maybe three buckets, the one or the one off another one of the ones who come back very, very periodically. 
Um, and those would be the first ones I would kind of consider clients. Um, and those ones, maybe it's like an hour every three months, but for a couple of years, say. Um, okay. And then there's others who it's maybe like once every three or four weeks. And that's, those go on for a year or two sometimes. I, so I want to talk to you about three basic things. Um, okay. For sure, let's do a little bit of signposting here. So I want to ask, how do you take your theology degree or, or equivalent history degree in your case and move from there to realizing some job skills and really having a career? I want to talk to you about the lay vocation because I think that's part behind everything we're saying here. And then I want to talk to you about what could be coming down the pipe in corporate America with really bad workplace environments. Okay. I love these topics. So I kind of want to talk about the necessity of this, but the, how did you learn how to do this? Like you went through this, is that right? And did anybody help you when you went through it? Yeah, no, those are great questions. I, um, you know, when I, got out of school, I got a job as a youth minister because I thought you couldn't do much else with a history degree except like some kind of a church work. I have a liberal arts background. People want STEM degrees, right? So um, then from there, I went to seminary. So that was like my first seven or so, seven or eight working years. And um, um, and after that, I wasn't, I, I struggled when I left the seminary to like kind of make the transition work and to get traction in my career. But um a few different sources uh, in my life started giving me mentorship and coaching, um, like a boss, um, stuff like that. And uh, it, it added up and a couple things started clicking between their mentoring and like my own experience. And it came together, um, started getting a lot of traction. And then um, after a, a few years of getting career traction and career growth and like kind of picking my career path and making it work, I realized that I had something to give back to somebody who was maybe a step or two behind me. And, uh, and at that point, just a step or two behind me, you know? And so I wanted to see how to do that. And that's how I got involved with Leone's Longing, the organization for ex-nuns. Um, uh, I'm religious. But I kind of don't like calling myself spiritual. Cause, uh, I, I tend to have a fairly um, brass tacks approach to thing. But I really did feel it growing in my heart that I wanted to do something to like give back, as cheesy as it sounds, this advice that I had been been receiving and this experience I'd been gaining. And so Leonie's longing came along um, at that point, and it, it it just fit perfectly. It's such a unique like ministry that you're doing. I have, I think that's what's going to be interesting, people. I told people you were coming on, and they were almost like. Either oh, I can't wait to hear that guy talk, or I need to call that guy. I'm going to skip the episode. Uh, but, but you just called yourself spiritual. So let's clear it up. You are Catholic. You're practicing Catholic. Everything yeah, like yeah, that. A, Sometimes spiritual is code for just being like a religious person who's not denominational. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, I like, I'm, I'm religious, but I hate calling myself spiritual for all those reasons. Like I pray my rosary, but I don't hear, I don't, I don't hear divine inspirations. So like when I say I felt it growing in my heart, that sounds like very cheesy. But oh, right. I, yeah. That's no, but, yeah, I, but I believe yeah. that's a real way God calls, which is great. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, first off, I want to talk about um, something I've said on this. I feel like this podcast has a couple of themes going on right now. And one theme is people starting stuff, right? Which I think you starting, you know, you getting this little niche ministry is amazing. And, um, but the other part of it is I like to say like everyone should do charitable work. Don't, 
you know, make it a career. Everyone needs to learn as much mm -hmm. theology as possible, but you should be aware of getting a theology degree. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not really against theology degrees, right? But you don't want to, um, it, it can be problematic, right? Um, where, where's, where am I going with that? Or like everyone needs to do ministry, but you don't all need to be ministers type thing, right? And right. so working for the church is, is rough. And the, the normal complaint is it doesn't really pay a living wage. And when you're taking the prime years of someone's career um, or where they're usually really getting set up in their career, like their 20s um, and, or early 30s, and you're not giving them a path that pays a living wage, this is rough. Yeah. Right? It almost takes a long time for the person to accept that that's not going to happen. You know? That's right. And I'm yeah. not sure the church isn't, I'm not really critiquing the church on this because um, an example of an alternative would be like in Germany, uh, tax dollars actually go to support the church. Like if you're right. Catholic, part of your tax money goes to the church and it's created this kind of union class of church workers that Pope Benedict right. has said is kind of a problem, you know? Right. Um, and we kind of are like, I mean, everyone who's worked for the church it's always supposed to have been like a voluntary poverty type move. You know, this idea of lay people right. trying to find careers in the church and get a living wage is a very, very modern thing. And it's not clear it's a good thing. Right. You know, so I, everything you said, I agree with. I think one thing as we're talking about it that comes to my mind is when I'm kind of teaching my clients like what a career is as opposed to like a strung together set of jobs. One of the things I encourage them to do is to look and see what the average tenure of employment is for a particular field. Like teachers have a long tenure of employment, 5, 10, 15 years is the normal. Um, but like in tech, we have much shorter. For product managers, which is what I do, three and four years, and you start kind of looking like a dinosaur. Like, And um, so look at that and pay attention to it. And, uh, and being a bit aggressive um, can be good and kind of planning your next move. So like when you take job A, already be thinking about job B and under what conditions you leave job A. And I think this applies in the situation because I think when you get out of college, like I did two or three years as a youth minister, it was great, loved it. I wish I had been thinking what comes next, that this is a two or three year thing while I'm young, while I'm not married, while I don't need any money, as opposed to I'm going to build a career this way because you're not going to build a career as a youth minister. There's no career path there. Like you could have like been working on a side project to get yourself ready for your next career or for exactly. your career. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, or even thinking like, if I want, if I really want to do youth ministry for the rest of my life, what does it look like with supporting a family? What do I need to do to make it happen? Because maybe you, you could be, you could be the next publisher of, of a string of very popular youth ministry books. I mean, the odds of that get pretty small. Um, you know, something similar that we talked about with Simple House missionaries when they're kind of leaving is sometimes the highest paying job available to them is um, very much an hourly job. Like it could be like giving guitar lessons for, you know, a good hourly rate, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is, is the future of it. Cause it's like, as you get older, as you get children, as you get married, your time is going to become more and more valuable to you. And your time is directly tied to your income in that. And you don't really, the only way you're going to increase from say 25 bucks an hour or whatever the max is, is by just working longer hours. 
Yeah. You know, no, that's right. You have to figure out how to leverage yourself, you know, you yeah. be hiring the guitar teachers or something. Well, so it's something it's interesting that um, I've encountered with my clients. I have fairly different career goals to a lot of them. Um, and some one of my mentors in particular kind of woke this inner shark inside of me that like wants to kind of gobble up the world and um, and uh, grow my career just to kind of see what I can do. Um, a lot of my clients, um, by the way, did that work? Uh, I'm still gobbling uh, <laughs> like my career is still growing. So, um, yeah, the um, and my ambitions um, have maybe only gotten inflamed since then. Um, but I, I think still so far in a healthy uh, way, uh, I joke about gobbling up the world, obviously. Um, but like uh, some of my clients, and I think it's legitimate, um, they don't have children, say, but they want a little bit of financial stability. And so helping them figure out that. And I think this is the difference between a coach and like, um, I don't know the right word, but like, because uh, like a part of a coach, like we're not playing baseball here where there's one set of rules and one set of outcomes for everybody. And then the what the first base coach tells you to do has nothing to do with your with your aspirations we all still have the same aspiration aspirations we're we're kind of building people's careers their jobs their like their happiness and that looks kind of different for each person so like one of my clients uh uh spoke uh in demand foreign language very fluently uh, a very rare in demand foreign language and um uh, was looking to do translation uh, in order to make some extra money, but translation of sacred texts. And so talking with her, like, I just don't see a way to make that profitable, actually. But in that case, like getting the tutoring, even in a downscale market for that, was like being listed at $60 and $80 an hour. Which if you if you annualize that full time, that's like $120,000, $160,000 a year. Even working half time, just adding that onto her two part-time jobs would make her financially very comfortable, very like and, satisfactory. And that, I think there's a truth in there though, that you're glossing over a little bit. That's like, um, yeah, maybe you should translate those texts, but maybe yeah. translating those texts is a free volunteer service to the church or maybe exactly. it's a side gig. Yeah. That's not what you're depending on for your income, yeah. you know? And I think that a lot of happiness comes out of that. And I, in my own life, um, you're not supposed to serve both God and mammon, right? Right. I think a lot of problems come when people try to make their main income source their service of God. Agreed. And this is a thing that I've learned now doing what I do is I have a full-time job. I work in tech. Um, it pays, pays pretty comfortably. And it enables me to do any number of other things, build an external economic engine, give back, and so on. Um, to take this example of the tutoring, you could tutor and just like tutor the children of the wealthy people of your area to learn this weird exotic foreign language that's highly in demand and um, um, and make a good amount of money, like maybe buy, her, buy your own house with that money and have like a little bit of financial stability and then have all the free time in the world, have 20 hours a week if you wanted to work on these side things that you have a passion for. Um, and at some point, as you get a better sense of how markets and economies work, you might be able to turn your passion into like a, a solid career stream too. Like there are people who are successful yoga studio owners, you know, uh, but there's a yoga studio, literally one or two on every street corner in DC. You can't just follow your passion. There's so, too much competition. I want to say this out loud. So the audience doesn't think I'm going to get down a rabbit hole and leave what they really want to hear behind. Cause I think what oh, people sorry. are really going to want to yeah. hear is like, 
tell me your first session of coaching or tell me like your main pointers. Right. But okay. I want to stick on this idea that like, um, sometimes the way you kill your passion is making it your job. Yeah. I've experienced you know? that. And that yeah. is like not so always trying to like, and I really hate it when we tell the youth, go find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's, it's, it's like garbage advice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> find, <laughs> find something you're decent at and that you can kind of enjoy learning more about and get good at that. You'll learn to love the thing you're good at. We, we always make the mistake of thinking we're good at a thing because we love it. Actually, all the psychological data and experience is the opposite. You get good at it. And as you're getting better at it, you get more intrigued. You learn its nuances. That's great. And you learn I, to love it. I That's my intuition. I hadn't didn't know there was data behind it. But it's like, I think most people get satisfaction out of doing things well. Yeah. Not always doing passion projects. Now, I'm not against passion right. projects, but sometimes those passion projects are your free time projects. Right. And when they become your whole time projects. The other thing with serving the church, which I think a lot of I think a lot of people who listen to our podcast probably have a Catholic culture degree, a theology degree, or something of that ilk. And a lot of them have been youth ministers or are, you know, or mm -hmm. are seminarians and things, right? Um, but one of the issues with a lay person serving the church is you do that because you want to serve God. You do that because maybe you see um, something that needs to improve and you want to improve it, right? But as soon as you get hired by the diocese, which is a hard job to get anyway, um, you first, the first thing you're going to learn is you're there to implement the bishop or if it's a church, the pastor's vision, not yours. Yeah. You know, that's what you're being hired for is their vision, their vision Correct. of what's a good church. Right. And their vision will not be the same as yours and will cause you to be somewhat not fully satisfied by the way you're doing your job it'll always come up even if you feel like you were given a free reign in the beginning right and the other issue is you know we learned this in the church sex abuse scandal is that uh there weren't whistleblowers there wasn't like a check and balance at the diocese you know and right you need to in a sense to work for the church you need to be a volunteer you need to be retired you need to be independently wealthy you need to be able to say no stop yeah. Yes. So that, cause as soon as you have three kids and a mortgage and you're in that meeting, you'll be like, well, I, I, this doesn't feel right, but I'm going to go along with it. I'm not going to speak up because my job is to pay my mortgage to take care of my kids. And that is right. your job. That's actually your job, you know? You're right. So, but, but then you end up, I mean, literally when you go to work for a diocese, I've heard this from multiple dioceses, the other diocese employees sit you down. And the first thing they tell you is don't lose your faith. Yeah. By yeah. working for the diocese, you know? All right. So all that was maybe too dark, but, but this is why you need to be working on your career so that you can actually spend more time at your parish helping as opposed to working at your parish. Yeah, I know. I firmly agree. I think full-time church work is the province of the very young, the retired, somebody who has an external source of income, like from a spouse or from investments. Um, but you, if you need money, if you don't have like that kind of capital to be independent or that kind of other source of income, then you become dependent on your employer. And actually, I think a lot of um, the advice I give and a lot of what I've learned um, focuses on gaining some independence. Building a solid skill set that's in demand gives you a source of like the ability to transition away at a short notice 
but also just having some savings and some assets that you could like tap into if if you say I need to tell this job I'm done with you and quit, you know. Right. Um there's like a lot of kind of slang language there. I, I'm not sure exactly how much, but we can say like um Oh, I, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shove off money. Yeah, shove off. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> but but by the way, Ryan, what you're saying though is like if you think there's any type of persecution coming or that the world's going to be more hostile to the Catholic worldview, you better take it seriously to have that shove yeah. off money, you know? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because Absolutely. you're going to be put in compromising situations where you need to walk away and still take care of your family. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. There's a, there's a parallel concept too. I call it get off your, your bum money. And um, because one of the things I see is that people who have a solid skill set where they could be making 20, 30, 40, $50 an hour, uh, just with a side gig paid hourly, are instead scrapping after like five and ten dollar things, like, right. like driving an Uber. Right. Driving an Uber is perfectly respectable work. I'm not trying to talk that down, but most people that drive an Uber to make a little extra money have skills that can make them a lot more extra money. Right. They just aren't aware of how to make that work for them. And so I teach people to kind of calculate their like I would help if you asked me to help move, I would help you move. Uh, because friends help friends. But if you offered to pay me twenty dollars to help you move, <laughs> that would be like right. really. Like it's not, you it's could not probably help me move easier by working a couple extra billable hours and hiring me a mover than actually spending your day moving me. Correct. And so a lot of what I teach my clients is just kind of how to think in those kinds of a term, those kind of terms, um, to be a little smarter about um, some of the stuff. Also, is um, more interpersonal. Um, clients have a hard time uh, getting along with their managers. Um, there's something to be said for said for speaking truth to power. Um, there's also something to be said about like knowing how to be diplomatic about what you speak and also knowing what hills to die on. And, uh, and those lessons aren't always like taught in tandem. So somebody might really learn how to shoot their mouth off and tell their boss they think they're dumb. But do you, do you yeah. feel like your clientele or people who are in the situation that they need your type of help are more likely to have a problem with a manager? Like I once knew still know former philosophy major who could not understand why philosophers were not the highest paid people in society. It was like unjust. <laughs> yeah. And I tried to explain it and I did not su succeed in getting comprehension on that. You know what I mean? Yeah, so that doesn't you surprise could, me. You could know all the eternal truths about civilization through your Catholic studies or theology or history or whatever degree. And now you have to walk in and you're talking to what a department manager doing what somehow so you're having a problem with this. So <laughs> yeah, about your TPS reports or whatever, oh, you know? Yes. Yeah. So no, but like, so here's the thing. So I don't, I don't have any data here. So I don't want to like go out on the limb. My gut does tell me that my clients are probably a little bit more likely than average to have a hard time. Um, that said though, like a lot of people who go self-employed and I know a lot of people, very often they like they don't fit into a broader environment. They don't want to. Like and actually I I talk to I don't again, I'm gonna sound like I'm trashing Uber drivers, but I talk to like every Uber driver I I can manage to when I get into the car. And the number one thing I hear is that they like the independence, which is great. That's a very low paying independence. Um and uh I think that means like they don't often the vibe I get is they don't want to be told that they that they need to be into the office at nine and nine oh five isn't good enough. Um, and that's actually more about like understanding and managing 
uh, I'm going to call them social expectations because we're still talking about like a, a, a dimension of society here. And so like one of the things I do with my clients is help them get a sense of like what the social expectations are. And I've heard things like that from my clients, like not exactly that one. That doesn't surprise me. Um, but just like telling your boss you're not going to do a particular piece of work and then being stunned to find out that like your boss is upset with you and going to have you fired. Um, just not really realizing what the full situation is. Also, corporate America does a lot of propaganda and um, the propaganda like we're a family or whatever. And it's in people who are not my my clients. I see them buy into that a lot, too. So like the church is telling you, go make a difference, speak truth to power. The 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 company is saying, you know, we're we're one big family. We care about you, um, and I and I care about the individual coworkers, and I think individual coworkers care about me. But we're not family, you know. And also, it is important to tell true things to people, even when they have power. But like all true things at all times to all people in power, what does that even mean, you know? And in life, you have to do a lot of keeping your mouth shut and knowing when to speak. And there's there's psalms, there's proverbs, there's there's wisdom of Sirach uh, about this, about knowing when to speak. It's it's a matter of prudence, you know? And um, and we're not always taught that when we're being told to, like, defend life or whatever it is, you know? Um, so, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that defending life isn't important, um, but there's something about measuring your impact with your intention and keep making sure that those line up that we're not taught. This is... I wanted to say this story. Uh, Priyash has said already earlier in the podcast because we're already kind of getting into what your real advice is. But I remember when I was 22, I was hanging out with a religious order of priests, and I was sitting at maybe a dinner table with them, and and somehow the topic came up of guys leaving their order. Mm. You know, and they said we give them a package of ten thousand dollars in a car, right? And oh, wow. now I'm going to like confess my own, you know, I feel like this is a very bad reaction I had, but my reaction was almost like, why do you give them $10,000 in a car? Like these guys are the quitters. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. they were just like, you just can't take a man who you're supposed to love, you know, who's been part of your community and like just send them out into the world at 40 years old with nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And $10,000 yeah. in a car, if anything, seems like not enough, you know? It's not going to set them up forever in their new life. It's just some right. help out the door. Yeah, Right. It gives them a transition potential. It also, now that I'm at Simple House, I see a couple more angles on that, which is like, one, you want, I hate to say it because for religious orders, it's different with vows, but like you want people to feel freedom to leave or they become toxic by staying. Right. You know, you don't yeah. want people to be scared to leave, right? Yeah. And so you can't just like think you'll be like, you know, on welfare if you leave. I also now just see that that love is necessary and that I think what you're doing by helping people who maybe involuntarily left orders or voluntarily left orders is very valuable. You know, I feel like my 22-year-old self was very judgy about that. Yeah, my 22-year-old self was pretty judgy too. <laughs> Life... Has a way, if you let it, life has a way of knocking the overjudgmentalism out of you, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk about the most important one. The reason why people are still listening is they want to know how to turn their theology degree into a real career. Okay. Go for okay. it, Ryan. 
Um, I'm going to bucket theology degree into like liberal arts degree in general, right? And the whole idea is the liberal arts are meant to be uh, liberated from the constraints of work, right? And let me say this. Every time I see a new liberal arts major these days, they all go, oh, I know I can't work in my field. I'll just have to go get a master's. <laughs> and you know what? Most of them still don't work in their field after they get the master's. And the master's doesn't make an inch of difference. Yeah. So full disclosure. Except uh, debt. It, it makes a yeah. good amount of debt for you. Yeah, it does that. It does a good job of fueling the educational industrial complex. Um, so at federal taxpayer expense, mostly. Um, so uh, I have a history degree. I don't have a I have parts of a, two different graduate degrees, but nothing that goes on the wall um, and, um, and nothing technical. Um, and I'm a product manager at a tech company. And what that means is that I lead a product team and a product team would be like interdisciplinary, like software engineers, graphic designers, and so on um, to figure out what we're supposed to build to advance the company's mission, like what feature, what new product, get buy-in from the company around building that and then see it through execution and then help make sure it goes off in the market and gets adopted and used by users. So it's a kind of a very holistic job. Um, there's a great book called Range. Uh, the subtitle is like why generalists triumph in a world of over-specialization or hyper-specialization. It's very good. I highly recommend it. It won't help you get a job going, but it might explain to you the value of your liberal arts degree. And what it comes down to is generalism, I think, actually. We have an increasingly fragmented and specialized world, whether it's in, in STEM stuff or at a university. And people are used to seeing their careers in these tracks. And you in switching from one ladder to the next is very hard. People are afraid of falling down a few rungs. Um, and you don't have to, actually, generally speaking. I mean, if I were to go and become a doctor, I'd have to do a lot of things. I'd go to medical school and start over at the beginning. But if I wanted to go from being a product manager at a tech company to being a product manager at um, a shoe company, um, and I know I know a product manager who manages the development of new shoes, um, that wouldn't actually be this crazy, crazy transition. But a lot of what you need to do for any of these kind of transitions is kind of understand where you are and understand where you're trying to go to and make sure things like your resume or your online profiles speak to your ability to do that. And so the first major advice I give. Can I help make your point a little bit? Yeah. Is that like, I feel like the only people, young people I meet who think that they have a career ahead of them are the ones who have specialized into a track, right? Yeah. And it turns out that every time there's a specialization track, uh, the return on the investment keeps going down. You know, because yes. the people who are already down the road keep putting up hurdles and keep increasing the price of entry. So, like, if you want to be an attorney, if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be any one of these kind of, like, gated uh, careers that have a very defined return, the return is getting worse over time. And yeah. the other thing is Alan Greenspan said something, and this is a very old quote. He said something to the effect of the average American's going to have seven jobs in their lifetime, six of which have not been invented yet. Yeah, I love that. You know, so you can't yeah. even go to school for most of the jobs in the future economy. And the future economy starts tomorrow. Well, here's a dirty secret is that let's say you were to go get a, a software engineering undergraduate degree, different from computer science, which is very theoretical and mathematical, um, different from like a boot camp where like it may or may not help you get the job. This is the thing that's supposed to get you a very practical job. You and I are of a certain age and I'm far enough along in my career that I work with people that did this. 
And so they've gone from like software engineer level one to level two to level three, now maybe a software engineering manager. And they're like, now what happens with my career? But you know who you know who all the executives are? Even if they have a background in software development or finance, or whatever, they also have a breadth of experience. Because when you're the CFO, your job isn't just to track the finances. Your job is to sell the company and its financial future, to sell the company. So you have to be good at communication. You have to be good at understanding how sales and marketing works. You have to be good at managing because you might have five or 500 people that work for you. And so all these are like kind of more generalist skills, actually. And all the youth ministers who are listening to this should recognize that in themselves. Like to be a youth yeah. minister, you have to be good interpersonally. You have to get a bunch of people to go one direction and sell the direction. You have to, I mean, these are the skill sets. If you can sell Jesus, not to be crass, <laughs> but if you can sell Jesus to grumpy teenagers, you can sell software that works to people that have that need. You definitely can. And and make an honest living doing that. This is, a, this is like an, inter, an, an interior hurdle that a lot of my clients have. They want to focus on church work. Well, I'm, I'm skipping ahead to lay vocation, but I'll just precede that. Um, they want to do something that's like serving Jesus, and they have this hard time. And I know at least I had the sense that making money was dirty somehow. But the thing is, like, you can do it honestly, like sell a thing that's valuable to people that have a need for that value in their life or their work. And if you weren't there, they wouldn't necessarily make that connection, and they would go without that thing, whatever that thing is. So um, I, I, I think it's, there's an occupational hazard to selling, but I, I've known very honest, a, a lot of very honest salespeople who decline a bad deal um, rather than push ahead and make the bad sale. So, um, so the, the first piece of advice, so not to lose that track, um, is to your resume isn't about you. That's a mistake people make. Your resume is about the job you're applying to and what a great fit you are for that job. And if you can get your head into that switch, it means changing the language. It means changing the structure of your resume. Um, back in 2008, there was a recession going on, um, but people were hiring. And I put out 200 job applications over the course of three months. I got zero calls back, not one. That's demoralizing. If I spend about 20 or 30 minutes uh, keying in the resume for the different forms that a lot of jobs, and almost all jobs required back then, not so much anymore. Um, if I spent 20 or 30 minutes doing that, that was like 100 hours, maybe 60, 70 hours down the toilet and a lot of morale down the toilet. Uh, one of the first bits of mentorship I got was from an HR uh, person. She told me that you've got to customize your resume at least a little bit because the HR people that are reading your resumes literally don't understand the stuff you put down. Or if they do, they don't understand how it connects to the job. If you want the thing, it's your job to go get it. The world's not going to hand you anything. It doesn't owe you anything. If I want a particular job, it's my job to make sure my resume screams that this job was made for me. And so I, I never send out a resume now that I haven't craft, crafted carefully for the job that I'm applying for. And this I've gotten good at it, so now it takes me maybe an hour, but it used to be two or three hours. But when I adopted this approach, I, uh, a few months later, I got my job machine. I started, I got my morale up. I tried again. I sent out eight resumes and I got six calls back. Wow. So even though I spent like two or three hours at the time on each resume, the return on investment was way higher. And actually my actual investment time was way smaller to get a much larger return. Um, it was just the per unit, the per resume investment went up. 
I think there was something hidden in what you said that I want to emphasize is that like people graduate college, even with a, a degree that has is applicable, you know, and it's like, they've been told in their whole process that they are the future. They've been drinking. It's when you graduate college, you almost always get a, um, quality of life decrease. Yeah. You know, cause colleges yeah. have become so nice. And then the other issue is you just succeeded and everyone, you know, went to your graduation and celebrated you. And now you're on the very lowest rung of the ladder. Yeah. And I feel like they, people don't, people are afraid to put themselves out there cause they're afraid of rejection. And really it's almost like all these resumes you're sending out should be viewed as lottery tickets that, that they could win. Yeah, yeah, even with a heavily customized one, I could be the perfect candidate, but somebody else is better at writing a resume. Or I could be a pretty darn good candidate and be very good at writing a resume, but there's other people there. Maybe they just got in first, or maybe, like, there's so many other factors. And the thing also, and I see this a lot with my clients, especially when they're, like, early stage, some of the ones who I've been working with longer and who've seen career growth, when they're first starting out, they take the thing personally. They send out a resume. They get really excited about it. They send it out. Um, they don't hear back and they get crushed. And so what I always try to tell them is that it's not their baby. It's not a be- it's not their baby they're putting into a beauty pageant. I-, I like that I like that analogy of a lottery ticket because to some extent it is definitely always a numbers game. I try to teach them to think of it as like doing dishes or some chore that they don't really like, but that they always are very good at doing. And just to do it every day for 20, 30, 40 minutes an hour and don't worry about the feels, don't worry if they love that job or not. Just like I try to help them be more objective and more mechanical and more process oriented about it and to de-emotionalize. Uh, I'm not a therapist. I don't try to play one, but to take the emotions out of it um, because that's where you set yourself up for a heartbreak when there's nothing personal about it. It's it, There's a lot of chance. There's a lot of um, like the mood of the hiring manager when they look at your resume and none of that has to do with you, you know? I kind of want to, so I know this fund, this there's a guy who I feel like echoes what you're saying, but he's in the world of fundraising, not in the world of like career coaching. And, mm-hmm. um, he taught us at simple house. I need to, I'm trying to find an excuse to have Eugene diamond on our podcast, but he taught us that like, when you apply for a grant, which we get not very much funding from grants, but even just to approach a rich donor, we would always be like, Oh, they want to donate something. Well, we need a van. And then we'd write this grant, like, we need a van. Here's what a van is used for. Vans are good. You know, they bring people to church. You can, you know, feel good about this van. And when I saw the way this guy operates, he's just like, show your whole master vision. Don't even mention the van. And at the very end, if they agree with your master vision, they don't care what you ask for. You can ask for a van. You can ask for a new kitchen to feed the homeless. You can ask for anything. Excuse me but get them to buy into the like bigger picture. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The vision that if they buy in, they'll, they'll probably throw money at you. I think this ties into a career and actually it goes into my next piece of advice for careers. Um, uh, the resume is about the job, not about you. Um, there's some, there's some other granular advice about how to make a resume work for you, but essentially bearing in mind that it's a marketing tool. Uh, but it's a very focused marketing tool. Like your LinkedIn profile is a billboard that everybody sees but your resume should be a love letter to a particular job that you wouldn't send to any other job. Um, the It's a numbers game is my second piece of advice, so don't take it personally. And this, what you're saying now, ties into a third piece of advice, which is that once you get an interview, 
they already kind of like what they see on paper. Now they're just trying to make sure you're not BSing them and that you're not a psychopath, that they can work with you. Yes. And so, yeah, so the key thing about the job interview and making a job interview work is make it not feel like a job interview, which is hard. And especially at the lower level jobs when you're first starting your career, where they're going to go in there maybe with like a form of questions they ask you and you answer the questions at the end is like five minutes left. But the better you can do in converting that to feeling like a conversation, the cool kid verb right now is to vibe. If you can build a vibe, get a, get a vibe going with them, then, uh, then they will like you. Yeah. So yeah, that was where I was trying to go with that. It's like, they want to know, like, once you're in there, I feel like the, what the error you're correcting is when people go in there and they want to prove they can do the job. And in reality, right. they're being interviewed to see if they mind spending time with you or if they enjoy you or having around and if they feel like they can relate with you or that something like that. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly so. Also, for some jobs, there's like a little bit more of a component. Like, it's OK for me to say on my resume that I regularly prioritize different units of work to accomplish a company vision, which is the thing I do on a daily basis. But they actually kind of want to know how I prioritize since there will be questions around that line. Like you've got these four things your team could work on. How do you decide what to have them work on first? Um, so they want to get into, but even there, there's, there's usually not as much a wrong answer as a wrong way of thinking, but they want to make sure they have a rational way of thinking. And this, this kind of fits into the category of, can they work with you? They want to make sure that you're not a BS artist, that they can work with you and you basically have the mental acuity. And so building that vibe is really important. And I think the number one way of building the vibe that I give um, to go in a little bit more granular uh, is um, to match their, their tone and their mood, not to imitate them or parrot them. But if you see it's a low energy kind of phlegmatic interviewer, don't be all cheerful and bubbly. That's off-putting to them. If they're kind of more business-like, then act a little bit more business-like. The common objection I hear to this sort of thing is, shouldn't you just be yourself? Well, yeah, but this is what everybody says who can't work with other people because they're only <laughs> thinking about being themselves and not about accommodating other people. And if we all just learn to accommodate each other a little better, we all work together a lot better. We live together a lot better and so on. What is the St. Paul thing? Like be all things to all men? Yeah, exactly so. And so it's actually funny. There's a funny little thing that's only slightly related, but a woman I worked for who is she's brilliant and I would work with her in any capacity again. Um she got a job at a big tech company, at a much bigger tech company than the tech company we were at. And their job description said, let your, or not the job description, the employee manual, she told me later on after she was getting ready to start at the new job, said, uh, let your work attire reflect your inner self. And she joked and said, I'm from Washington, D.C. I don't, I don't have an inner self. And, um, and, but what she's saying there is what she's learned over her career is if it's a blue jeans office, she wears blue jeans. She's not trying to show them how to be a professional. And if they all dress in Ann Taylor, then she wears Ann Taylor. And the reason is, is because if you just bend an inch or two to fit in, it clears so many other hurdles. And there's, there's going to be a number of things that we cannot do to fit in as Christians. Why not just wear blue jeans when other people wear blue jeans? That's not well, hard, actually. What you're saying is also like the key to evangelization and everything. The key to being yeah. persuasive is to give the ground where you can and fit in where you can mm -hmm. and relate where you can. And then meet people where they're at. Then when you bring a difficult truth, you're not just the crazy outsider bringing difficult truths. Right. You know? Right. The other granularity about um, interviewing, I talked about the vibing with them is kind of do the things you do to make a conversation more interesting. 
um, and I kind of this I kind of try to um, make the interview more about the interviewer and about the company I'm applying to. It's, it's they need to find out stuff about me, but people like to talk about themselves and they like to talk about the company that they feel loyalty to or that they feel an interest in or invested in, and they probably do if they're interviewing for a job, like they're a manager or they're a peer who's very happy at that place. So they probably like the company to some degree. And so an easy way to do that is when they say, hey, uh, Clark, how do you do X? How do you prioritize different work? What I do or what I encourage my clients to do also is say, well, here's kind of my approach, generally speaking. How does your company do it? Or how does Ryan Tech do it? Like, do you guys have an established manner? Are you looking to grow and develop your, your process for prioritization? And then they talk about that for a few minutes. And this serves a couple of valuable things. And this gets into my fourth piece of advice um, is that it also, it helps me learn more about the company as the interview goes on rather than just those five minutes at the end. And so I can see, is this a place I want to work? And the fourth thing, the fourth advice is the other side of interviewing. You are interviewing the employer. Unless you're literally starving, you have options. And one of those options is stay where you're at. And I mean, maybe you're sleeping in your mom's basement and you're tired of that, whatever. But you usually you usually have options between you and the curb or the gutter. So interviewing your employer to get a sense of this is a place I want to work at and go into there with eyes wide open. I've taken a job. I've taken jobs for is even since I got this since I got my career traction where um, I went in knowing that this was not going to be my dream job on a couple different counts. But I was going to get something out of it that I wanted. That was going to help me advance my career and grow and learn. And it turns out I was right. It was not a dream job. In fact, the one I'm thinking of wasn't even a great job, but I got what I needed out of it. And But I went in there with my eyes wide open because I, I was interviewing them at the same time. And if you can get yourself in the habit of doing that, there's something very attractive about it because it, it requires a bit of confidence, but it grows your confidence. And we people, some people want a drone to fill a chair. A lot of good managers, they actually want a business partner who's going to help them get their job done that they can trust and rely on, even though the person is subordinate to them. And so just going in with a bit of confidence and kind of trying to get your head in the game of that business. Um, it, I, I think that's, I think that's important. Even if you're applying for a job as a grocery store clerk, just ask the manager. Yeah. I would be very attentive to customers. What's the number one thing that you have a problem with your grocery store clerks doing? This precedes you. You get seeded with information when you're starting your job about what annoys that manager and what you should do right to make sure you're on the manager's A-list, not their B-list. Um, so yeah, that's fourth piece of advice is interview the employer as well. So I know an entrepreneur and he would always ask when he hired a new employee, uh, he might ask this in writing, he would say, um, what do you think is the right way to fire someone? And they would uh, give him the answer, right? And he kept a file of all these answers. And then if he had to fire that guy, he would go dig in his file and find out how that person thought the right way to fire someone was. And he would oh. do whatever they had written, right? And he said he couldn't even believe it because like somebody would be, somebody say, I just tell him straight up and I do this and this, right? And then he'd do that and they would literally walk out the door thanking him and saying that was the best firing I've ever had. <laughs> It's almost unbelievable. I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm gonna <laughs> do that. But all right, let's let's talk. Like almost everything you said um, would suit anyone to hear. Um, not necessarily like a, a religious Catholic who's trying to transition or a former nun, right? But I want to talk a little bit about maybe the particular Catholic problems with 
our view of the lay vocation in the workplace. Yeah, that's right. Good. So I let me throw out a few problems and then you jump on with your own problems. Like I meet people who don't think they're in their vocation if they are not married or not a priest or in, in the process of religious life or something like that, right? And therefore they kind of don't feel like their life quote has traction yet or, you know, is important yet because they mm -hmm. haven't quote mm -hmm. found their vocation. That's kind of dumb and we can talk about that. And and then the other thing is um, I feel like, you know, the way vocation is priest, prophet, and king. And we sometimes, I think, get confused as laity that our vocation is the same as the priest's vocation. Meaning like right. we're really worried about the liturgy. We're really worried about, we're putting a lot of energy in that part. And there's this incredible dignity to the lay vocation. I'll give my little spiel and then you jump. Uh, my sense is just starting with the Old Testament, priests work in the temple. That's their job. They run the temple. To a Catholic, that means they run your parish. They run literally the liturgy, right? The liturgy is their professional duty. Right. Right. And that doesn't mean you don't can't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that you don't participate. It doesn't mean that you're not right. also got a priestly vocation of worship and doing these things and participating in the but sacraments. It's not your province. It's not your territory. It yes. It's 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 definitely the priest's territory, not yours, right? And people will go to war with their priests over whether or not you're kneeling to take communion or something, you know. And the lay vocation that's not being talked about is literally everything outside the door of that church, like the education right. of the next generation, the security of our nation, the prevention of nuclear war to make sure that um, we don't destroy the environment, to make sure that, you know, families, you know, have ways to support themselves. Like this lay vocation is absolutely tremendous and we need people in all parts of it. You know, like we need lay soldiers, we need, um, software engineers and we need, you know, roofers and we need all of those vocations and teachers and all that. Right. And I feel like somehow there's this way that devout Catholics feel purposeless in their lay vocation, you know, yeah. and particularly maybe when they deal with a really large corporation where they see the problems of that corporation and they're not in charge. Like they're on the lower yep. rungs of that ladder. Go ahead. Go yep. ahead. And what are your thoughts on this? Oh man, I'm getting ready to explode. I've got a lot of thoughts. Um, so my great patrons, my two great patrons are St. Joseph and St. Thomas More. Um, and um, um, St. Joseph, we have this idea that he was a poor man. It never actually says that anywhere in scripture. The one indicator is that they couldn't find a place to sleep in Bethlehem. Uh, this makes me think that the rooms were full, and that's actually, I think, what the scripture says, and that St. Joseph wasn't rich enough to have somebody else thrown out of their room, maybe? But not that he was poor, exactly. Like, the other things we know about him were that he had a skilled trade using a relatively expensive commodity in the Holy Land, wood. People that have skilled trades using relatively expensive commodities aren't usually destitute. Um, this is what we know about him. So, I have a hard time trivializing the work of St. Joseph, um, which wasn't given its value only because he used his livelihood to raise the Son of God. Um, 
I think it's very valuable that people use their livelihoods to raise their sons and daughters, whether their sons and daughters are divine or not. Um, and so our mission of kind of building the material conditions of Earth to support human society, because that fits into this divine plan, has a divine dignity. Um, as for your work, whether it's trivial or whether it's imperial and grand scheme of things work, um, I have a hard time seeing St. Joseph turning out crap from the, gar uh, the garage or the workshop in Nazareth. It's just not what I see him doing. I see him delivering on time and satisfying or blowing away his customers' expectations about the beauty of his tables. I see them having commissioned a nice table and him having made a beautiful table um, and charging them reasonable rates that they were satisfied when they accepted the commission or they made the offer or whatever. Um, so I think there's a lot of dignity there. Um, St. Thomas More is on the very other end of things. He was a lawyer, right? So his his vocation, his trade is very much about words rather than deeds or about um, ideas rather than about tables. Um, and he was rewarded well for being very good at it. He became the, the late medieval, early modern British equivalent of the Supreme Court Chief Justice and Attorney General, uh, all rolled into one. Um, the chief legal officer of the realm, second only to the king. The final court of appeals, subject only to the king. And um, he was honest. He was known for his honesty, his integrity. Um, he was awarded with a barony, which is like, you know, the size of a small town. That was his personal domain. He was well, wealthy enough that he built a zoo when he built himself a little cottage for talking or for working and researching um, so he could be away from the noise of his family. But he was also very, very generous. So his zoo wasn't just for his children. It was for his neighbor's children his servants' children, his tenants' children. Um, and Are, are he, you trying to, with these examples, are you trying to say we shouldn't have a stigma against wealth? Is that what you're trying to say? or What I'm trying to say, that's part of it. We shouldn't have a stigma against having authority. We each have a realm that we are invested in. And thanks for getting me back on track. We each have a little realm that we're responsible for, and this is the heart of kingship, I think, uh, that we should grow that, that realm to its natural limits based on our ability. And then, whether out loud or quietly, in the name of Jesus Christ, make that place more compatible with his vision, the vision that the church gives us and teaches us for what a good place looks like, a fairer place, a kinder place, a place that's less arbitrary, a place that's more gentle, a place that has better boundaries and is clearer about its mission. It, I, I've worked in, I've worked like cubicle jobs, I use the word cubicle because it evokes the vision I'm trying to evoke. Um, where there's like no real purpose, no real mission, but a good manager can let me know what my job is and can let me know what success looks like and can help me build my career. I tried to do that with my reports. And that's a kind of a kingship. I have a little bit of territory. I'm not, I'm not the Baron of Chelsea, but I have a little bit of territory where I don't absolutely exercise absolute authority, but where I have influence. And for me to make that place more like how Jesus Christ would want it to be like, to be more like the carpenter shop in Nazareth, and like less like some sweatshop in a in a hellhole mill town. That's a beautiful thing. And the people that receive the benefit of that, I've seen this myself and I've, I've, I've experienced it myself, are very, very grateful. If you've ever had a good boss, you know how, how great that is. So be the good boss. Do that in the name of Jesus Christ. I can't see how that displeases our Lord. I can't see how that displeases him. I think that's the lay vocation. Uh, in yeah. a nutshell, is to, to so, exercise our influence 
So the way vocation is to shape the world, Correct. to right order the world, to make it closer to God in a way, right? Exactly. And if, if you were to think, I think of this in terms of like, you know, when the U.S. generals get together and have to figure out if they're going to war or what they're going to suggest, you want a couple real believers of Christ in that room. Yeah. Because <laughs> and, and there have been people who literally went to meetings and prevented nuclear war. Like we've got a tape of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think he was a Catholic, but he was the ambassador to Russia, spoke up and said, I think you're wrong, Mr. President. Basically yeah. said, give Russia an out on this so we don't go to nuclear war, you know? That's right. Um, you want people in these rooms. And I think what you're saying about like when you get people who start little companies or whatever, you create space for people to live much better lives. Yep. You know? Yep. My my wife has changed jobs like five times, but only really like once. Her her job keeps getting bought out by a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger company. Mm -hmm. And um it's been interesting because when it was the very smallest company, the director of the company had a nickname that was like Evil Ed. It was like some nickname <laughs> that was like some like slanderous nickname. And yet that company was like the best. Like at every scale it went up, it became kind of less human. There was no real reason. There was no economy of scale, really, you know? Yeah. And she actually enjoyed working for the smaller company that had a very imperfect owner more than she liked working for kind of the nameless, faceless, huge company. And I just think there's a lot of little things like that where we have room to really improve people's everyday lives, you know? I agree. And even if they're not a religious believer, um, they still benefit from it. And if they ever find out that you are a disciple of our Lord, it builds the credibility of, of, the, Christian, of the Christian community and thus of the Christian message, of the message of Jesus Christ. Um, and a lot of people just haven't experienced a credible, a credible proclamation of the gospel from somebody that they find believe, belief worthy or somebody that they can trust or take seriously. So I think, um, like, I don't really talk about politics or religion at work. I feel like that obstructs the mission of that, of the workplace, but I, people get to know each other outside of hours and stuff like that. And so um, networking is a part of what I teach my clients and just getting to people on a more, on a more holistic and broader level, uh, is very valuable from an evangelical point of view and also from like a helping them point of view and a helping yourself point of view. Um, the stuff I tell people, it sounds sometimes repulsive when you put it in the workplace, it feels manipulative or whatever. Um, like the don't speak truth to power instead, like be discreet and pick your battles, but actually like the Psalms and, the, and Sirach and Proverbs all tell us to know when to talk and to know when to keep silent, you know, and there's a lot of prudence there. And how, how about we take that idea and talk about prophet? Because uh, priest, prophet and king, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Gregory the Great has a good letter where, or sermon where he defines prophet and he defines prophet as one with a hidden knowledge that has been revealed. So it does not mean prophesying the future. You can literally prophesy the past. Right. Like, and Jesus does this. He says, you were sitting under this tree or I saw you, you know, you, you can literally prophesy the past, but you can also, in a sense, prophesy by saying something that is hidden about someone's life or just mm -hmm. hidden knowledge and bringing hidden knowledge of God out into the open 
like like mm -hmm. this emperor has no clothes or this unspoken truth and bringing it to the open is mm -hmm. prophetic, right? All right, now that that's out of the way, prophecy. All right, well, I feel like there's a lot of systems. Um, I'm getting a little bit off track, but I'm going to let this happen. Um, there's a lot of systems where there's the mainstream and the outsider. And you see this in the Old Testament. You see the temple, and then you see the prophet Jeremiah. You know, often the prophets were not in the temple, right? Uh, you know, the U.S. government or our, our nation was also supposed to have journalism. You know, I think they, they call it the fourth estate. That's supposed to be the check on the power. You know, we have the three branches of governments, and we also have journalism, right? Right. Uh, but then as journalism gets out of step with the truth, they also have their own weird outsiders, the Alex Jones of the world or the Joe Rogan right. or whoever that is, right? And when a system is healthy, the outsider's irrelevant. Right. Like if the temple was doing a great job worshiping God and proclaiming the truth of God, Jeremiah wouldn't have needed to have a powerful message and done all the crazy things he did, right? And right. when journalism's healthy, Alex Jones is a complete fool. You yeah. know? Yeah, the yeah, problem is yeah. when Alex Jones starts saying things that are correct, that like when the outsider starts saying things are correct, that the institution is ignoring. That's when right. the institution is sick. Right. You know? Right. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and I think as lay people, uh, here's a reality that no one really talks about. And a lot of people would hate this reality, but this reality is 100% true. There are lay people in every single diocese who the bishop has to call and ask to get things done. You know, there's wealthy yeah. families, there's business owners. Like when they want to found a new school, there are lay people they have to get on board. Even your parish probably has some people they have to get on board if they're starting a major new project, right? And at first glance, that seems terrible seems unfair. Like, why are we limiting the vision of the bishop by needing to recruit these patrons? Right, right. right. But, but maybe it's, maybe it's kind of part of the natural law. Maybe it's the way this thing was built. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I randomly enough last night, I watched this video about how power works and it tried to abstract from dictatorship or democracy and kind of get key concepts. And essentially what it comes down to is there are stakeholders and a lot of people with, with interests in the thing and um, and to some extent, having to get them on board, it's just human nature. Like It's like the animal part of us. We're primates, right? Um, there's something very prudent about it because like they will have perspectives that you don't have. And part of my job, I don't unilaterally make almost any decision. Um, my job is to make sure that decisions get made, maybe take responsibility or take the fall for them. But I generally have to get someone else on board. Very often, the process of getting that person on board uncovers something I didn't see myself that makes the vision better and this is why when i say speak truth to power like we should like know what hills to die and also how to be diplomatic there's a lot of coaching involved in this and um, a lot of times it's a matter of asking a question like hey what would be the negative implications if i do x y and z with my team rather than just telling people i'm doing this or telling them that they're wrong and dumb and then putting myself in this humbler position means i keep learning and growing and helping my team do our job better than if I just start dictating and being all self-confident or too self-confident, you know, there's a lot of confidence in asking a humble or a hard question. It's like an imposter syndrome thing and uh, getting over that. And so I think to go back to your metaphor on a broader scope, um, this could be a very effective way to make change. There was a company I worked at. I 
this is, I think she was probably a pretty good manager. In hindsight, I've, I've kind of attempted to reach out to her and like apologize for having been a terrible employee. This is before I got some advice. I was getting good at the craft I was working at the time, technical writing. Um, was just like how I got into tech. And, um, and I kept going to her with bright new ideas. And she would say to me things like, I'm in my position because the vice president of the organization likes the way I do it and wants the, st wants the ship to stay steady. And I'd be like, oh, right, right, right. And here's a great new idea, too. I didn't make that connection. I wasn't like I wasn't hearing her, you know. And um, I ended up leaving. I basically got run out on a rail. Um, and I, I, I left to avoid getting fired um, because I drove her nuts. Um, so I've definitely made the career mistakes. This was 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I've made the mistakes. and it's, I've learned some hard lessons. That I like to spare my clients. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, is this other guy um, who's gone on to other things that he loves and are great, he got most of the same changes made with the same manager or the same team. Just by being more patient, playing a long game, asking questions, finding ways to de-risk the ideas for her so that if it failed, it wouldn't make her look bad or it wouldn't make the team suffer. He was just smart about the same things. And so here's a dimension for prophecy too. Sometimes the prophet needs to stand on a hill and yell and scream. You're going the wrong way. You're about to go off a cliff. Stop. Other times, though, the prophet can be the person in the boardroom and say, you know, if we go down this path, what's, what's the next thing that happens? Do we get sued over this? Do we lose a lot of good employees? Maybe we shouldn't go down that path. And there's something very prophetic about that, too. And the key thing, you know, prophecy actually comes from the Greek words to speak on behalf of or speak for. And this is, again, about knowing your audience and finding the right way to speak to a particular person like that resume. Um, and, um, and that shouldn't come out of myself, as to some extent it will, always. But it should really come to reflect and respond to the situation. Um, this is the thing I try, I've been, I'm working on learning still. It's a, a work in progress. And I try to teach my clients is like the just be yourself stuff that we're taught all the time. It's actually great for, you know, if you don't want to have responsibility, you don't want to fit into a broader social structure, you don't want to have, because it's very self-centered. We don't see it that way, but it, it is. It's actually one of the most self-centered things. Whereas understand the situation, adopt and adapt and modify it working within the terms of reality. There's a hard spiritual lesson there about my own limitations. Um, but this is also the more effective way to work in the world, uh, as well as to be a humbler person. So, uh, and this is what St. Thomas was very good at. St. Thomas More was very, very good at working with reality as it was. But he's also a great patron because when his back was up against a wall, and he either had to do the, the Henry VIII thing or the Jesus thing, he couldn't do both anymore. He knew which one to choose, didn't hesitate. Right. So, and he did it at great suffering. So, I think I find with my, if I can go back to the career stuff, specifically with the ex-nuns, is that very often the concern I had this was that this moment would come a lot sooner than it needs to. Like they'll see you're an ex-nun on your resume and they'll interrogate and be mean to you. But actually, I've never experienced that. I had one coworker who made these occasional weird comments about like me being Catholic when she found out down the road. And actually, I think she may have found out because she saw my resume because she interviewed me. I, I don't remember. Um, but actually... Most of my coworkers, they don't know that I was in seminary. It's not really their business. They don't see my resume before I start, you know. Um, the resume isn't a gap. People worry about that. Being in a convent or being a stay-at-home mom isn't a gap. A gap is a, a multi-year period of having done no work, of being idle. That's Employers are worried about laziness, like you said. They're not worried about you having a diverse background. They're really not, actually. And When people find out I'm Catholic, typically they either like it or else they just kind of end the conversation and want to go back to work. 
And either one of those, I think, is a really right response, actually, because we're supposed to be at work to get work done. Um, and if it's not something that's personally attractive to me, that's my response when I find out that somebody's, I don't know, like a Greenpeace activist. And that's not like a thing I'm super interested in. I'm not even judging that right now. Right now. Um, but I either engage like, oh, that's so cool. Tell me more. Or I'm like, okay, let's get back to work now. You know? Um, so I think a lot of the persecution that we experience as Catholics, some of it, a lot of it's in our minds and it's like not there actually. We, we exist as a stereotype in most people's minds, but when they actually meet us, they don't have a problem with us unless we're a loudmouth jerk. So don't be a loudmouth jerk and they won't dislike you actually, um, is my experience. Well, Ryan, let's talk about real persecution. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cause there's, there's this imagined persecution that maybe we're worried about that's not real. Right. But, yeah. um, so I live in Kansas city. We're not a coastal city. Um, you're we're probably as far inland as you can be outside of Russia or the Sahara. Yeah. Um, we, uh, have a lot of engineering firms. One of our major engineering firms will do, um, education for their employees that is about like transgender and pronouns and all that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a situation where you cannot ask questions. Of course you can ask questions. They welcome questions, but the questions are a bait and you're in trouble if you get labeled as asking questions. Right. And, um, I don't know that you need to ask questions, uh, to, you know, I don't know that that's the right moment to speak up for truth, you know, maybe, uh, but there comes a point where every day there's going to be this kind of mild toxic situation, you know, mm -hmm. that does not help faith. And unless you're extremely committed and a naturally happy person, you're going to have problems. Yeah. You know, and you might even be compromised, feel like you're compromising your integrity in some way. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 boy, that was long winded, but I brought that up because we're not San Francisco here in KC and it's an engineering firm. It's not like a nonprofit social welfare agency. You know what I mean? Right. Like this is very far reaching this type of stuff. Right. So what about that? Is that just a situation where the person needs to go start their own business or what, what's going on? What, what do you see as the future of Catholics in the workplace with that stuff happening? Um, so it's hard for me to tell. I can't read the future. It's hard for me to tell if I've been lucky. I've never been asked to sign on any dotted lines that positively affirm anything. I have had to sit through some of these workshops. Um, the law, St. Thomas More. Uh, CIRAC, they all tell us that silence is golden and that like keeping your mouth shut without positively asserting anything is not a lie and it's not even it's not even collusion. Um, them saying a thing that's false isn't the same thing as them killing innocent civilians where if I don't do anything I'm complicit. Just sitting there and like sitting there um, isn't violating the law of God. Um, and it's also to some extent smart for us to sit in on these things and listen and really pay attention and understand them very clearly because it's important for us to understand this stuff better than the people who say I understand it because it's filled with logical inconsistencies. It's irrational. And we need to be very, very clear about that. Um, I think most of the time it takes the form of voluntary or semi-voluntary rubber stamping things. And I, I won't put a pinch of incense on the altar of 
the emperor. Um, but that doesn't mean I won't like, I don't know, like have neighbors who do um, or work in the same marketplace as the people who do while even while a ceremony is going on or whatever. Maybe I'll clear the room. I'm going in a little weird with the metaphor. I guess what I'm getting that though is that like most of the employers that are doing this, they actually don't care. Like those engineering firms, the owners, they don't care. This is the thing they feel that they need to do in order to avoid lawsuits and in order to keep a small vocal crowd um, from getting more vocal. And I think there's two major approaches that can work for us in this. One of them is just be quiet and continue doing our jobs and be a great employee, the kind of employee they don't like to lose. And the other one is that a lot of people in these situations feel the same way as you do. Start finding ways to band together with them. Um, I happen to know from an inside scoop um, that when the airlines were having all these problems uh, dur a year or so ago, it was because of sickens, where the pilots, because the labor union, the pilot unions weren't doing what their what their members wanted, so they all just called in sick, and all the flights were canceled, and all the airlines backed off. It amazes me. My my family was on the runway in Laguardia and got pulled off a plane and it's hard to have a multi-day delay in New York city. Yeah. Particularly when you have a lot yeah. of kids. Right. And it was Southwest and they said it was the weather. And I'm like literally checking weather at all major cities in the U S on my phone. And it's not the weather. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, it amazed me that the media did not like all it took was a journalist to make very few phone calls to very few pilots or pilots mm -hmm. unions or whatever to uncover the scoop on that. And they don't want to know, but <laughs> the airline, the airlines, the airlines knew, and that's what right. mattered. Right. Yeah. And so this is not advice. But this is a, and, and I, I don't want anybody hearing this. It, well, by the way, do it this. does matter because what they're doing is they're robbing solidarity. It's like the yeah. same reason why they don't cover the March for life each year is because they don't want it. They don't want people who believe that to feel like, oh, I'm not alone. That's that's exactly right. They want you to feel alone. Yeah. So I think here's the thing. So if it, let's say at a company, 10% of the workers, and in tech it's probably like that, maybe it's higher in some companies, are like super ultra woke. But there's at least as many, because think bell curve. There's at least as many or something like as many or some proportion thereof that are like totally not. And then there's a bunch of people who kind of do what they have to do to get by. Um, and they don't have opinions strong enough to dictate that particular course of action. I would suggest quietly networking with coworkers that feel the same way you do, like suss them out very quietly and uh, band together. There's moral encouragement there. But if your numbers get significant enough, and I've seen this actually happen at companies where the 20 of you can sign a thing saying, hey, we respect these coworkers. We like them a lot. We understand their goals and we support a lot of what they stand for. We also believe in inclusion and fairness. We also want to be able to do a good job knowing that we don't agree with everything and we want to know that the company respects us and our right to have different opinions and put that out there as some kind of a sign thing or group statement. You know, um, This happened recently at a place where I have some inside knowledge, again, not my current employer, with uh, the Roe versus Wade decision being overturned. And then in the, like, the, the women in tech channel, a bunch of people were all upset about that. But then a bunch of other women, probably more than our leadership, the, the leadership of the company would have expected, also put like kind of a counter message being like, hey, we just want a politics free, religion free workplace where we can do good work. Can we leave politics and religion for personal lives and get on with a mission here? And um, yeah, um, I think the employer doesn't want to lose 
good employees is really, I think, the heart of it. So I'm, this isn't advice. I wouldn't say run off and do this. It requires a lot of thinking and careful planning. I think the, the generally the good thing to do um, is to have somebody who's outside the workplace who kind of thinks the same way you do. To, you can bounce the ideas off and be like, have I gotten too close to putting a pinch of incense on the altar? Is my integrity still intact? Somebody who can help hold you accountable. And again, build your career set. Um, grow your career set and make yourself more flexible. Save money so you can tell the job to shove off if you need to. But if you're a good employee, they won't want you to leave. I like see what you're saying in a couple ways. Like you're kind of like if you watch uh, Man for All Seasons, this is exactly the tact of St. Thomas More. You know, you make, you know, you don't throw back in the face every problem that, you know, you have with the employer, et cetera. Right. And I think you're also right that, and this is also the challenge of our age and you kind of saying, Hey, there's some strategies you could use. That's exactly right. We all have to figure out how to meet this challenge of our age. Um, my, my thought though, is that, um, you are a very, you know, theologically educated Catholic. You have a lot of, you know, pillars in your faith you know, uh, that you can see through the nonsense, right? When I look at my own kids, when I look at uh, people who come to Simple House right out of college, like we literally had someone last year who came from Berkeley and was a Simple House missionary, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, well, we've, so all types of colleges come to Simple House and oftentimes they fully agree with the catechism, but they also don't really see much problem with like transitioning a child, yeah, you know, or something yeah. that's like pretty a bad situation. Right. And, um, and like literally I was talking to one the other day and she said over her year at simple house, she started seeing more of the problems with this movement and she didn't get when she came in, you know, and it's because of her mm-hmm. formation. Mm-hmm. Like she was from a good right. Catholic family. She went to a four-year college. And when she came out of that college, she had a worldview that, I don't think was the most Catholic worldview. Right. Right. Um, right. Now, when I look at my own kids, like I've got at least one rebel in there that I'm sure could work at any organization and lead the rebellion, you know, Mm -hmm. or not Uh lead the rebellion and keep their faith. Right. But I've got others who like, I hope they go to a more nurturing environment. You know, like I've got a Mm -hmm. kid who maybe I would send to NYU and I've got a kid who I want to send to Steubenville. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and so, so Ryan Haber, I feel <laughs> yeah. like you're someone who I'd be fine sending to Harvard or whatever. Right. But like, you're also someone. If but, you're paying. But, well, right, right. But there's, but there's like millions of Catholics out there that yeah. every day they go into a, a pro-abortion environment where they're always talking about how they're going to pay for all their employees to travel out of state to have abortions. And that's celebrated every day. This is going to be quite corrosive to faith. Yeah. Right. I think. And, and that's where I'm starting to wonder if lay people need to a little bit build the parallel economy. Yeah. Yeah. There's something for that. And the extreme, the extreme would be like when you're in New York city and you see the Hasidic Jews walking around and you realize they got their own world going around in the Mm -hmm. underground in New York city and they appear to be doing fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> if you're doing better than fine, <laughs> yeah. they seem to own yeah. quite a few things. Um, but they're so strange looking and they're very much insular. And I don't think Christians are ever meant to be insular. Right. 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 But um, there is a point where starting your own company might be like the, the more talented Catholics maybe need to do that as part of building the kingdom. 
No, no, that's right. So, and here's the thing. I have this, I, I don't really generally give advice about starting a business because I did work for myself as a freelancer for a while. I wasn't super successful. Like I paid the rent and that was about it. But I have this theory that uh, your business will grow to the size of your personality, whether it's like your abilities or your aspirations. Um, the, um, there's a lot that goes in there. So like one, having the financial independence, however you get that, whether it's by just saving aggressively or whether it's starting your own business and having a lot of happy clients is very important for us to be able to live with integrity. Um, if you're an employee, that that's, again, it goes back to that. If you can have some financial independence um, or some career independence is very, very valuable for any number of reasons, including your integrity. Um, but also um, when you're building a business, you create room for other people to be safe. And it doesn't have to be like Jesus tech. It can just be a tech shop where you don't do bad things as a company. And when you have like charities that people can do for their uh, good deeds day or whatever, is what we call it at my company, that the ones you put in front of people, we do a good deeds day every quarter where the company basically pays you on a Friday to go do a good, go do a service project. Um, and my company, I love my company. It's a great place. And the ones I put out there are pretty anodyne. It's like stream cleanups and stuff like that that nobody could really have an objection to. Um, so you can do those kinds of things and be a very successful business person and just create like a safe place for employees who just want to do a good job um, whatever their political views are. And that's very valuable. And it doesn't have to be something that's like a church focused business. It doesn't have to be like a youth ministry consultancy or a Catholic book publishing company. It could be a carpentry shop in a town like Nazareth, you know, and hire some junior carpenters and build a business, mentor and coach them. Mentoring and coaching, I think, especially for single people like me, is deeply, deeply rewarding. Um, and I think it's one of whether it's mentoring, coaching, training your own children or, or training a junior employee is like one of the most fulfilling things. This is like, I think, kingship and prophecy almost crystallized in the normal workaday work, daily life of a person who's not actually a monarch in a medieval kingdom. Um, there's something very, very like regal or kingly or queenly uh, about that kind of that kind of growing of another person, helping another person grow. So absolutely like do that. And I think if you've got the talent to build a career, one thing I would advise is that like, if you want to build a business that's successful, I think that the best business people I've known, the best man, I think they're good managers of people. You'll never be a good manager if you're not a good managee because the two skills are very tightly interrelated. And if you can do one well, you can probably do the other one reasonably well. Um, so definitely do a stint or two working at other companies. And I would like to start my own business at some point. And actually I've got some ideas. Um, one of the things I went back into the world of W-2 full-time employment in corporate America was because I wanted to learn how different job functions worked and I wanted to, to learn how to work with them better uh, in a way that was kind of more financially stable to get my feet, to get myself started. And I've learned a ton by doing it. I've seen good managers and I've seen bad managers and I look very deliberately to see what they do. This is like general career advice or life advice from Ryan is, um, is like pay close attention to what people do and don't think about what you dislike or like, but look at what works and what doesn't work. Because you might not like it for your own neurotic reasons, like you have authority issues or whatever, but it might really work generally pretty well with most people. And then like learn to do that and get over your own personal issues. This is like the recurring theme like of my, my advice is like, don't act out of yourself exactly. Like you're going to do that fine by default, but like try to respond to the world as it is. That's I think extremely valuable. I think that's true. I think this world as it is, is one of the ways God's communicating to us too. You know, yeah. the world's fallen, but it's also got the blueprint that God had in it. 
you know, and yeah. sometimes we have our own ideological reasons why we hate that blueprint, but our, our, our own neurotic, neurotic reasons. reasons. Yeah. yeah. Neurotic reasons. Well, Ryan, I feel like, um, there's probably a couple people who've been listening. They're probably frustrated with me right now who, um, think, wow, I need to talk to him because I've got four kids. I'm still a youth minister and I need to transition out of this or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If someone wants to get in contact with you, are you taking new clients? I am. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm told that we will like put links in the description. Um, you can reach out to me. My email address is my first name dot my last name at gmail.com. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I worry and, about uh, links in the descriptions because we're not just on YouTube. And I'm not sure that when we put it out to all the platforms, the descriptions are all the same. So, yes. Ah, okay. All right. You just heard his email. His name will be in the title of the episode. This is Ryan Haber. Thank you so much, man. Hey, Clark, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. All right. God bless. Take care. God bless. God bless.